back. Um, but today, man, we're, we're going to look at uh, relationships again. And we've already been through, uh, I think, five or six uh, relationships, marriage, singleness, uh, adultery, and Spring Branch. That's online. You can listen to that. It was great. Uh, what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus. So we looked at all these, and we said we can't control the circumstances around relationships. We can't control if they're stormy or if they're calm seas. But what we're called to do is to navigate through those relationships. And today, we're going to look at, uh, at a relationship that, that kind of hit me on Friday uh, that we, uh, I want us to make sure we have some good truth about, and that's the relationship we have with sin. Relationship with sin. <laughs> and so I want to look at some truth today. So if you have your Bible, you can go to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to set up shop there quickly, and then we're going to jump over to Luke chapter 15 and spend the most, most of their time today there. The reason I want to look at our relationship with sin is that when I look at a person's relationship with sin, I can tell a lot about that person's relationship with God. So if I want to know how is Derek doing with God, uh, one of the relationships in my life that I can look at is what is my relationship to sin? Is there an intimate knowing Sin, is there a longing? Is there time spent there? Is there, what is my relationship with sin? Because it will tell me a lot about my relationship with the Lord. And we see this at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. Uh, You guys know the story better than I do. Genesis chapter 3 is after God had created Adam and Eve. He created them in his own image. Okay, So they're in the garden. They are perfectly made. There is purity. There is righteousness. There is nothing bad. There's no evil. There's no condemnation. There's nothing there other than goodness. There's perfect communion with God. It says that they actually walk together in the garden. I mean, I mean, can you imagine how close Adam and Eve were to God in the beginning? That there was no condemnation. There was no guilt. There was no shame. There was no deceit. There was no rivalry. It was man the way he was intended to live with God, life with God. We see this in Genesis chapter 2. And then Genesis chapter 3 comes along, and we know the story. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan comes on the scene disguised as a snake, a serpent. And he comes to Eve, and he begins to attack her identity. He begins to attack the very truth that God has spoken to her. He begins to take that truth and twist it just enough where she thinks, well, maybe God did say that and begins to undermine the truth of God by the way he speaks to Eve. And so Eve then looks at the fruits that she was told not to eat, the only thing in the garden that she was not supposed to eat. She had full reign on everything else. One thing that she was not supposed to do, Satan says, hey, Eve, you're missing out on life. Listen, listen, you you can be like God. Why don't you eat this? And this is the Eve looked at the fruit and saw that it was appealing and saw that it would make her wise. In her pride, she chose to listen to Satan, the liar, the father of lies, instead of truth with a capital T. And she took and partook of the fruit. Then she gave it to her husband, Adam, who was not leading her very well. And he took and he ate of it. And we're going to pick up the story here because in this story, we see from the very onset of sin, we see a relationship. We, we see what's happened. When sin is present in a relationship, I am in a relationship with sin. There are some things that we see, and we see this from the very beginning. The first thing that we see is when we are in relationship with sin, there's guilt. There is guilt. We see this in Eve, in Adam. 
Look at verse 12 and 13. So God comes to them. He says, what have you done? And in verse 12, it says, the man said, this is Adam. He says, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God turned and looked to the woman and said, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, now in this, in, in the relationship with sin, there's going to be guilt. And we know that we have guilt because we start blaming other people. Okay? We, we see this. And, and who does Adam blame first? Man, listen to this. This is, this is not a good way to start your relationship with your wife. Listen, Adam does what? He says, my wife made me do it. That's a poor excuse, man, because you're supposed to be leading your wife, okay? And so he says, my wife did it, but he didn't just say, my wife did it. What did he say? He went even further, and he says, the wife that you gave me, God. So he kind of looks to God and says, hey, the woman that you made with my rib, I followed her. So it's not only her fault, it's your fault for giving me such a woman. I mean, blame from the onset. If you're guilty, you're going to be blaming other people, or you're going to be blaming God. But then we see there's a third party that you may blame, and maybe you've done this before, Eve says, the serpent deceived me. Satan made me do it. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I mean, we have, we, I, in my own personal family, we had a major incident 10 years ago with parents. And, and, and one of the parents, the, the excuse they gave for what they did is Satan made me do it. Man, that is a terrible excuse. Because it takes the guilt that I feel, the guilt that I actually did, because guilt is, is, is actually doing something wrong. That's what guilt is, whether against a law or a personal conviction. That's what guilt is. It takes that guilt and that blame, and it tries to sidestep it and push it somewhere else. And so we know that we're in a relationship with sin if we are in guilt, if we are feeling guilty. And this is the danger of guilt. Guilt transforms our identity. Adam and Eve, perfect, made perfect by God in the garden. But what happens? They sin, and then they begin to transform their identity, and they question, who did God really make me to be? And so when I sin, what happens is I begin to view myself as a sinner. And listen, if you're a Christian here today, if you've trusted Jesus with your life, you know what I'm going to say. Listen, if you're a Christian, sin has no hold on you, but this is what happens when we are guilty, when we have a relationship with sin. We begin to get our identity screwed up. We begin to see ourselves as sinner versus who God says we are. And so our identity gets jacked up. And so what we see if we're in relationship with sin is the first thing that we see is guilt. And it begins to transform our identity. The second thing we learn here from Adam and Eve is, is that if we're in relationship with sin, fear will always be present. Fear will always be present. Look at verse 8. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. How, how amazing would that be? Just take a breath here. Just take a deep breath, what we're reading here. They said they heard God walking in the cool of the day. That would be amazing. Man, I wonder what that sounds like. Is that like T-Rex or is that like a little, I don't know what that is. It would be amazing. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then skip down to verse uh, 11. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And I apologize. Go back one verse. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. This is Adam speaking. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. 
And so we see if we are in relation with sin, if we are operating in sin, we're going to have guilt, but we're also going to have fear. We're going to have fear of the repercussions of what is going to happen if God finds out or what is going to happen if the person that I've sinned against is going to find out. And we see this, that when Adam and Eve, they sinned, they entered into this relationship, they were scared of God, the same God that created them, the God that breathed into their lungs, the God that walked with them daily, the God that communed with them perfectly. They began to be Afraid of the one they knew so well because when you're in relationship with sin, it always brings fear. And this is the dangerous part of fear is that fear breeds isolation. So they take this fear and this projected view of what is God going to do to me. And it says that because they were naked, they went and they hid themselves. They isolated themselves away from God. If you're in relationship with sin, you're not only going to have guilt, but you're going to have fear. And the third thing that we see in Adam and Eve is if we are in relationship with sin, we are going to have shame. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So one minute they're naked and unashamed. And all the men said, amen. And then the next minute, sin breaks in. They enter into this relationship with sin, and shame comes upon them. It goes from, from being completely fine to shame. So when we're in relationship with sin, we know that we are going to feel great shame. And what happens with great shame is we begin to undervalue who we are. We begin to equivalent who I am based on what I have done or what I haven't done. And in doing so, the danger of shame is that it seeks a facade. If you're a construction person doing anything with construction or if you built anything, you would understand a facade because a facade is this. A facade is this image or a front. It's like the front of a building that is beautiful. And the definition says it's the outward appearance that maintains that everything is good. It conceals the less pleasant reality. And so it's this picture I prop up in front of the world that says everything is okay, yet behind it is a bunch of ugly, wretched sin. And so if I'm relationship with sin, what's going to happen is I'm going to operate in shame. And when I operate in shame, I'm going to put up this image management where everything is all right. Even to God, I may try, the God who knows everything, I may try to pose my way into church, pose my way into community group, pose my way into serving And at the same time, in the inside of me, the truth is that I'm filled with shame, that I've undervalued who I am. And in doing so, I am hurting my relationship with God. You see, these three things, Adam and Eve, it it robbed them of their identity as friends of God and led them to turn away from God. That's what relationship with sin does. It leads us away from God and it undermines who God has called us to be. Turn to to Luke chapter 15. We're going to spend most of our time here, Luke chapter 15. We're going to see this taught by Jesus, the same thing. Uh, We're going to read through uh, a part of the prodigal son. If you've been here over a month or so, uh, you may have heard me teach on the prodigal son and and what waits us when we return to God. Uh, Today, I want to look at a very specific part of this story uh, that deals with guilt, fear, and shame. Uh, let me give you a little background. There was two sons, a younger son and an older son. The younger son goes to the father and says, hey, uh, dad, I-, I want my inheritance now. 
In essence, he was saying, I, I wish you were dead, but you haven't died yet, and so why don't you just give me what you're going to give me when you die, and so we'll all be happy. And so he takes his inheritance, and he goes, and he blows it. And we don't know if it took a day or a week or years. We don't know in the context of the story, but he goes, and he blows all the money, and then a famine hits, and he finds himself in a pig pen feeding pigs. And that's a really bad thing for a Jew um, who uh, believes that pigs were unclean animals. And so the completely humiliating job. And then it says that he came to himself and he said, what if I return to my father? I know he's not going to re- receive me as a son, but what if he allows me to be one of his hired hands? So he has this brilliant idea, and then he gets the nerve up, and he goes. And so what, what I want us to look at and kind of read between the lines a little bit here is what was keeping the son away from the father for so long? Like, like by the context of the story, we know that the, the boy had lost everything, that he was pretty much down to nothing. That doesn't just happen overnight. So there was some time that happened that, that allowed all this to transpire. And what I think kept him from the father was these three things, guilt, fear, and shame. And I say that by this. In, in Luke chapter 15, verses, verse 18. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. You see, he recognized his guilt. He he was operating in guilt. And so what what I think happened, and we don't know specifically, but what I believe in reading into the text as best biblically as I can is that he was operating in guilt. His identity was no longer a son, but it was almost an enemy to his father. He he was guilty for what he did, and it was keeping him from even considering to go back to where he came from. Guilt. The second thing that I I see in this is is that he operated under fear. Verse 19, he, he says this. He says, treat me as one of your hired servants. This is the speech that he's going to give his father. And so what happens when we're operating in fear is that we always shoot really low to, to, to kind of meter our expectations. Have you ever done that before? So he doesn't go high and say, man, father, will you accept me as your son? But no, he says, hey, let me back and just slip in under the bottom. You see, when we're operating in fear, we always go low. You see, he was scared of what his father was going to do because he knew how bad he messed up. He was full of guilt, but then he's fearful of what's going to happen when I actually return to my dad. Is he going to shun me? Is he going to kill me? Is he going to just put me back out? Or or would he even accept me as a servant? And so this is the place that he's operating in this relationship with sin that is keeping him from his father. And the third thing that we see really clearly is that he operates in shame. Luke 15, verse 19, he even verbalizes his own feelings. He says, I... Am not worthy. How many of you have ever felt that way? I have. I am not worthy. And so he is operating under shame. He cuts who he is. And, and, and a lot of us would say he has good reason. But here he says, I am not worthy. And so what he is actually doing is he is disqualifying himself from being considered a son. I am not worthy to be called such because of what I have done. His identity now is wrapped in what he has done versus whose he is. And all of these, I believe, is what really kept the son from returning for so long. It delayed his return. It's not even what actually sent him back. It was his stomach, remember. He was hungry, and that's why he returned to his father. And so we see this in the son, guilt, fear, and shame. But, but that's not the end of the story, thank God, because then we get to the father's 
response. And this blows me away. And I pray that today that it would be a fresh revelation to you because you've maybe heard this before, but I pray that it would fall fresh on you. Let's just read directly from the text, starting in verse 20. And he, speaking of the boy, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a far way off or a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Man, hallelujah, that's right. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, he, he, didn't, he just he turned his, from his son, hey, you keep talking, hold on, turned to his servants. And he said this, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So what happens to the father? So we see the prodigal son, he is operating in guilt. He's operating in fear. He's operating in shame. Yet he comes home on a whim, on a hope. And what we see is the father's response. Now, remember who is listening to Jesus when he's telling this. There's a bunch of Jews around him, okay? They understood the context of all these things Jesus was saying. This robe, this ring, and these shoes, they're not by chance. There's a really specific way that Jesus was speaking to this audience. And so I want us to get some context because I think it will deepen our understanding of who God is and what he desires for you. So the first thing he gives him is a robe, an, an outer Garment. Now, you got to remember this boy, he was coming from the pigsty. He smelled like crap. He, he was full of crap. He probably still had it on him. He likely did not have any shoes on. He may have had very few clothes. He was either worn out or maybe he sold it to try to feed himself. And so he shows up a train wreck. Definitely would not be getting in my house. But, it, but his dad sees him and he says, hey, I see you. Go and get him a new robe because this is what a new robe meant. It meant that this son, I have accepted him. He is in right standing in my house. And so when he slipped that robe on his son, he would have taken the rags off of his son, put the robe on his son. And what his son would have known is that I am my father's son. And and when he did that, he also would have let the community know, listen, this my son, that son that you wanted to to crucify when he came back, that, that son that shamed me, this son, he is accepted in my house. See, the robe stood for right standing, that he was no longer shameful. That his father had accepted him back into his house. He was with him and that robe would represent to everybody that my son is back. He is alive. He is in my home. He is my boy. And then we see the second gift, which is a ring. A ring. And now most of us uh, associate rings uh, with either championships or with wedding. Um, And and a ring in this culture, though, uh, was very, very specific in the meaning. Uh, the men would wear rings, and it was actually called signet rings. And there was a lot of meaning behind a signet ring. Uh, if you think back to Joseph in Genesis chapter 41, you can go study. It's actually a great like, addendum to this. If you want to go look at the gifts that Joseph was given by the Pharaoh, it lines exactly up with what we're talking about here. But one of the gifts that Pharaoh gives Joseph after he interpreted his dreams, he takes Joseph and says, now you're going to be over all of my property. You're going to be second only to me. And the only difference between you and me is going to be that I'm going to sit on the throne, but you're going to be right behind me. Okay, this is where Joseph got. And so Pharaoh takes off his signet ring and he gives it to Joseph, who was just in prison a few days before. 
He gives him his ring. And what that ring represented is when you see Joseph and he's wearing this ring. Listen, when he speaks, he is the same authority as the Pharaoh. When he speaks, he has the same power that I have as the Pharaoh. And so what it is, it's a delegation of power when I take my ring and I put it on somebody else. And so what do you think that boy felt like in that moment? He came in full of fear. Is, is daddy going to allow me in his house? Is he at least going to be allowing me to be in the servant quarters? And there was great fear in that. But then his dad speaks right into his fear and he takes a ring and he says, put it on his finger. Because when my boy speaks, he's part of my family. When he speaks, it's like me speaking. He gave his boy, instead of fear, he gave him great power, great authority. And we see that in here. What an amazing testimony of the father's grace and mercy that he would give his son that had just shamed him, that had come back. He gives him a robe so everybody knows that he's part of the family. He gives him a ring to make sure everybody knows, hey, this boy, when he speaks, he's speaking on my behalf. And then the third thing, all the ladies said, amen, he gave him some shoes. Now, now, we live in society that we take for granted the number of shoes that we have. Uh, I am a man. Uh, I, I, didn't even, I don't own a pair of Sperry's, Sparrows. I actually thought they were Sparrows at one time. Um, they're Sperry's. I don't own a pair, but even a man who, who, like me, doesn't know what a Sperry is, I still have like 10 pair of shoes, right? And most of us here, we have 10 plus pair of shoes in our closet, so it doesn't really make a lot of sense to us or that much of weight. But, but in this moment, you've got to remember, put yourself in the situation. This guy was coming back from the pigsty, rags, nothing to his name. He probably came back barefoot, or if he had any shoes on, they were all tore up, and so he had nothing. Now, now what we need to know about the culture is that only slaves and extremely poor people did not have sandals. And so when, when this boy came, he had no sandals, and so there was complete shame for this boy. So his father says, no, my boy, he's not going to be walking around the community with shame. He's going to be given honor, so go get him a pair of shoes. I'm going to lift up. I'm going to get this kid some shoes because I want him to be recognized as not a poor person, not a slave, but as my son. I'm going to honor him. Now, when I was uh, in college, you guys know a little bit of my story, but I like sharing about the Buckeyes down here in Texas. Um, when I walked on, um, I, I showed up to the equipment room uh, like a week later and was issued all my jerseys and my pads and, and everything. And I also was given a pair of cleats. Now, I was a wide receiver. And uh, if you don't watch much football, wide receivers really like to look good. Uh, they just do. If you look good, you feel good, you play good. That's kind of the motto of a wide receiver. And so I show up and, and I play in wide receiver. And they give me these cleats. And as I, as I walk on, you really don't have a lot of say. You just kind of say yes, sir, and do what they want, you know, tell you to do to the best of your ability because you're scared. Am I going to get cut like any day? Like what's going to happen? Am I going to eat the next meal or am I going to get called in the coach's office and, hey, you're not cutting it? And so that's the life I was living. And when I was given my, my cleats as a wide receiver, uh, I think they either messed up or it was just a test because they gave me lineman cleats. And I'm not talking like, like cool lineman cleats. I'm talking like old school, like high top, weighing two pound cleats for me to run in, to run my routes in. I mean, come on. I mean, I'm already not the fastest guy in the world, but then you're going to put some concrete shoes on me and make me run a route like that was not fun. And so uh, I said, yes, sir, thank you. And I went out and I practiced my best in my big lineman cleats. <laughs> but, but guess what? Down deep, uh, there was a little embarrassment because all, all, all the scholarship guys, they had sweet, sweet low-top, like six-ounce cleats. And they looked so good in film, and I had these big black high-top shoes, and I looked so slow on film. Oh, it was embarrassing. And then one day, uh, Troy Smith, who ended up winning the Heisman that year, he was a good friend of mine, 
and, and he recognizes I'm running routes and in practice, you know, we, we go with first team. I definitely was not a first teamer, but I was running routes with him for some reason. And he said, uh, he said, wait a second, I can't throw passes to a kid wearing lineman cleats. That's just not going to happen. That's not how I roll. And he says, I'm going to do something about that. And so I was like, I don't know what he's going to do. But the next day I show up and the um, equipment manager comes and gets me. Hey, Derek, uh, hey, what kind of cleats would you like? Troy had a talk with me, and he said he needs to throw a ball to somebody who has actual wide receiver cleats on. So what shoes do you want? And so I picked out the sweetest pair of cleats, and I look so good in those cleats. Oh, I actually almost brought them because I still have them. I wear them once in a while. I feel good about myself. (laughs) I don't run because that would be almost apart from the team. I was already feeling that way because I was a walk-on, but then I had to go out and be embarrassed by the shoes I was wearing. Like, it was bad. But, But Troy recognized the shame. And he was like, I'm not going to walk in shame and throw to this loser. Like, let's get him some shoes. And so what, what he did was he brought great honor to me. He brought great honor because he said, hey, I want that kid to wear good shoes. So listen, I, I get what this parable is saying that, listen, go put shoes on my son because I want to honor him. I don't want my son walking in dishonor. I don't want him to walk in shame. And so we see these three gifts that the father makes it really, really clear. That the prodigal son, he is my son. That, that the identity was no longer what my son did in the past, but it's who my son is today. My, my identity, my son's identity is no longer in what he did in the past, but it's whose he is today. Listen, did you hear that? It's not what I've done in the past, but it's whose I am today that makes our identity. And we see that here, and he gives honor. He gives great innocence. He, he shows that he's in right standing. He gives great power. He attacks the very thing that was undermining who this boy thought he was and who he thought his father was. And you say, that's great, Derek. I've heard that story before, uh, but what does that mean to me? Well, well we've got to recognize, what is a parable? Uh, a parable is a method used to teach a lesson. So a parable is a made-up story. The story is not a true story. It is a made-up story, but the intent is to show very clearly a, a very important truth. And so Jesus did this a lot. He would tell this big story, but in the midst of it was this cutting truth, and he would tell the story just to highlight this one truth. And so today what we've got to ask is what is the truth that Jesus was trying to highlight? And I think there's several things that you could go on, and we could probably name several off. But I think the primary thing that Jesus was revealing to both the sinner, the tax collector, and the priests that were both in his presence was that God's unfailing promise to a humble sinner who returns to him is extravagant generosity. Mercy, grace, love, righteousness, extravagant generosity. And it is so extravagant, in fact, that it is unbelievable to those who have never experienced it. So you can imagine the sinners here, they're probably like, yeah, I love that the daddy just gave him a robe, a ring, and sandals. But the priests, the the ones that were religiously doing everything right, can you imagine? Can you imagine that that guy gave the son that? I can't even imagine the generosity there. You see the difference? If you've never experienced this generosity, you don't believe it's real. It's really hard for you to get to understand the extravagant generosity of God if you have never experienced it. But this is the good news that Jesus brought the world. 
This is the kingdom of God that he told his disciples to proclaim before he ever went to the cross. Let that sit you a second. He, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom before he ever went to the cross and was resurrected. So what was that good news? It's the good news of you are now free. You are no longer a bond servant. You're no longer tied to religion. You are free. And Jesus came to declare freedom, to declare redemption, to restore our relationship with God and restore our own identity, the identity that was stolen in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. We are no longer captives. We are no longer blind. We are no longer oppressed. We are no longer have to operate in guilt, fear, and shame. If you are a Christ follower, you are not bound by these things. Let me tell you again, as a Christ follower, you are not bound by these things. I'm not telling you you don't deal with these things, but you are not a slave to these things. It's a big difference. You're not a slave to these things anymore or the consequences of them because this is what Jesus did when he came. And this is where all of this is applicable today in Cypress, Texas. Number one, if you follow Jesus, he replaces your guilt with his innocence. Your guilt with his innocence. When you put your faith in Jesus and confess your sins, the scriptures make it very clear that he is quick to forgive all of your sins, right? You've heard that before? Yeah, we all are. We, yeah. but, but what's interesting is sometimes we forget what else happens in that transaction when we place our faith in Jesus. Yes, he removes all of our sin, but then a second thing comes is he also gives us all of his righteousness, now, now think of the picture that Jesus was showing in this, in this story. The son who was full of rags, he had those stripped away, and then he was given the robe. See, this is what Isaiah was speaking of in Isaiah 61. He was speaking of the, the robe of righteousness. When you are saved, your sin goes out the window as far as the east is from the west. You're void of sin, but you're also full of God's righteousness. And that changes everything. Because when God sees you, he sees the blood of Jesus. He sees you as perfect, as holy, as a royal priesthood. That's how God sees you if you have trusted in Jesus. Just like when the father looked at his son and he had that robe on, he saw his son. He didn't see the prodigal. He saw his son. And that's what we have in Jesus. That He says, listen, there is no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. None. Absolutely none. So I don't care what you're feeling today. If it is guilt, it's not from Jesus you have no condemnation if you've trusted him with your life. And then Jesus goes on and he says, I'm going to replace your fear with my power. I'm going to replace your fear with my power. Second Timothy says this. He says, God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, of love, and self-control. Listen, sometimes as Christians, we get in the mindset of woe is me. The world around me is all falling down. There's so much evil in this world. Like, let it in, let it in. But listen, we miss out on the reality that Jesus says, I have taken away your fear and I have given you my power. Because you are no longer slaves to sin and you're no longer slaves to death. In freedom, you have no fear. In addition to that, he says, I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to empower you. Church, we got to wake up. Some of us really do need to wake up. 
Because, because this is what happens. We fail to recognize that we have the same spirit in us that healed many through Jesus. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. Not just with you, he's in you. And some of us just need to recognize that and say, wow, I don't have to walk in fear. I don't have to walk in timidity that I've got the spirit of the living God in me and that changes everything. I don't have to fear because God is with me. It changes our lives when we receive that. And the third thing that Jesus does is he replaces our shame with his honor. Our shame with his honor. So when Jesus went to the cross, Paul says that he literally became sin for us. That when he went to the cross, he took all the shame that was due us for the sins that we've committed and all of God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus. Every single bit of it. And so it says that Jesus took our shame so that we could be honored. The Bible makes it clear that there's no greater love than this, right? And he that lays down his life for another. But I think there's also, there's no greater honor in life than for somebody else to lay down their lives for another. So listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your shame is taken away because the one who came that was shameless, he shamed himself to provide you with honor by dying for you. And in doing so, he honors you by inviting you to be part of his family. Listen, there's no greater honor than to be invited into greatness. And he says, listen, I'm going to forgive you of your sins, but then you're going to reign and rule with me in honor for today, but then all of eternity. That's the promise that we have as believers. It's good news. Good news that God has taken away our shame and he has given us honor. Jesus himself did this. (laughs) It blows me away. There is no greater love. There is no greater honor than for somebody to lay down their life. And that's what Jesus did for us. You see, a mature Christian recognizes the effects of a sin relationship, and they know what to do when they sin. They take their relationship with sin very seriously. They don't just brush it under the rug and pretend it's not there. No, a mature Christian recognizes that they are not perfect, but when they are not perfect, they trust God and turn to him when they sin. Because I can tell a lot about your relationship with God based on your relationship with sin. What do I do when I fall into sin? Do I trust God or do I listen to the lies of Satan? What we also learn, and I'll close here, we'll wrap up, is is what we see the son do. We, We look at him and we say, what did he do that was so good that the father gave him all these things? What did he do? And the simple answer is that he came to his father and opened up his hands. He came back to his father. He had nothing to offer him, but he let loose of all the things that he was trying to do. He let loose of that, came to the father with open hands and said, God, I I want whatever you have for me. And, And church, that's what it looks like when we come to God. Just like this prodigal. He doesn't require us to clean up our own mess first. He doesn't ask us to go to church 10 times and then maybe you can come into my presence. No, he says, if you humbly come to him, Humbly come to him and ask him. He will give you all the things that we just talked about. It doesn't require anything on your part but to come to him and to receive. And that's what's challenging for a lot of us because we want to add a bunch of additive things to that. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to do this. And guess what all those religion and rules, what they do? 
They increase our shame, they increase our guilt, and they increase our fear. None of which are from God. Listen, my, my, most of my adult life, uh, probably not quite most now, uh, you know, six years after really getting wrecked by God here today, um, most of my life, though, was, was filled with shame, fear, and guilt. Because of my addictions that I was part of, because of the sin that I was partaking of and could not break loose, even though I was a Christian, that, that sin in my life, the addiction in my life, I, it made me operate in these three things every day. And, and out of that place, my relationship with sin, it was so tight, man. Sin had me in its grips. And I began to, to lie to my wife. I began to think about who can I blame for why I even got into this addiction? Who can I chalk up to blame? Because I really didn't want the blame. I wanted to be innocent, but I knew I wasn't. And so I operated in great fear of of what if somebody finds out my addiction, my world's going to end. What what if my wife finds out that I've lied to her for five years straight to her face? What's going to happen? And so I was so fearful, and then the shame that would come in was overwhelming. I would, I would get to, to get to the addiction. I would get it. It would be a great high, but then the next moment, Satan is telling me, how dare you? You were a terrible person. You claim to be a Christian, yet you're doing that, and shame would flood like a river into my life. And let me tell you, it was a living hell. But at the same time, because of shame, I had the facade of everything looked great. Everything looked great in my life. Leading Bible studies, doing great things in the church. But I was a wreck because my relationship with sin was so tight because I had guilt, fear, and shame. And Satan used that time and time again to keep me tight with sin until one day where it just got so bad and the Lord graciously spoke into my life and challenged me and wrecked me. And I finally said, God, I can't do this anymore. I'm messing this up really bad. I need you. With open hands, I came to God with humility and said, help me, God. Help me, Daddy. And when I did that, everything changed in my life. Everything changed in my life when I did that, when I recognized that I can't do it. But, God, I trust you as much as I can that your promises are true for me, and I want that. Because here's what happens, I think, often, and I'm going to close with this, I promise our emotions can, can quickly deceive us, right? right? Anybody else experience that? Your emotions can tell you one thing, and, but it's not really the truth. Uh, some of us in this room today are, are, are really struggling with some sin. And, and really what Satan is doing in your life right now, he is keeping you in bondage to that sin through fear, shame, and guilt. And this is what happens as a Christian sometimes, though. I, I feel these feelings, these emotions, and what I do is I chalk that up to the Holy Spirit. And so I said, man, the Holy Spirit's really convicting me, but for some reason I'm just not getting over what I'm struggling with. And so I think sometimes we feel like it's conviction, but it's really Satan whispering in our ear lies about all those three things. And so let me just give you a practical question to ask yourself if you're having these emotions and you're not sure is it conviction or is it guilt? Is it pointing you to Jesus or is it pointing you away from Jesus? Because if I am operating in guilt, shame, and fear, I am never going to go back to daddy. But if it's conviction from the Holy Spirit, we know the Holy Spirit always points us to Jesus. And so that's an easy way for you to tell. Easy way for you to tell. So if you're a Christian today, this is specific to you. If you're a Christian, if you are battling guilt, fear, and shame, you've got to ask the question, why? 
And then the second question you've got to ask, what lies am I believing from Satan? And what truth am I not believing from God? Because it's one of those two things. Because a believer who is confident in their identity of Christ does not operate in those three things. It's, it's not possible. So we've got to ask ourselves, what lies am I believing or what am I not believing that God is? No, Jesus, as your Lord and Savior. <laughs> uh, there's a good reason why you feel guilt and why you feel shame and why you have fear. Because you don't have a father who wants to take away all that and give you his good things. And so today, if that's you, and you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never said yes to Jesus to recognize I am a sinner, that I can't fix everything on my own, that I've jacked my life up, I need God. If you've not done that today, today you can come back. Don't listen to the lies of Satan that says, hey, don't do it. You're good. Just next week maybe. Don't listen to the lies of Satan. Listen to the Spirit. Just ask him, God, what do you want me to do today? Whatever the Spirit says, do it. And if you want to make that commitment today, during prayer, you just get up with everybody else who's going to get in prayers in these two aisles, and you just say, today, I want to be free. I'm sick of being in bondage to sin. I want to be free. I want to know Jesus. I want to know his Father, and I want to be filled up with his Holy Spirit. And he is a good gift giver, and he will give it every single time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus to be the exact imprint of you on this earth. Thank you that we get to learn from him. And thank you that he said that he would send his spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so um, I just invite you, Holy Spirit, um, just to till up areas in our heart, Lord, where there's darkness, where there's relationships with sin that we have held on to because of guilt, fear, and shame. Lord, I pray that you would bring that into the light today that we would trust the God who calls us home, that we would trust Holy Spirit, that you are pointing us to Jesus because he is the one that can deal with our jacked up lives. Lord, thank you that you are a good gift giver. I pray that we would walk in innocence, power, and honor for your name and your glory.